Welcome to Back Porch Bible Studies, where friends come and talk about what the Bible says about our God. My name is Deborah Geisels, and I'll be your host on this weekly podcast. You know, it's been said that the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. So here, we'll study to know our God, and to know Him is to love Him. So, grab a drink and settle in for an afternoon of catching up and talking about our great God. Welcome, friend, to my back porch. I'm so grateful that you are back again with us here in Ephesians. We are starting in the hinge of the first three chapters and the last three chapters of Ephesians. The hinge, the hinge is the prayer in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3 that we have just read. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the hinge. It sums up what has been said and sets up what is about to be said in the remaining chapters of this book. Well, let's begin to get into chapter 4 of Ephesians. In verse 1, Paul says, I therefore. Now, whenever you see the therefore, you always want to see what it's, you know, therefore. You always want to look back. We've already looked back, and we know now what he's talking about. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, let's nail down what it means to walk in a manner worthy. Once we understand that, we can jump into the chapter. Okay, the phrase, walk in a manner worthy, has the idea of living a life in such a way that it measures up to something. Think about a set of scales. If you have 10 pounds on one side of the scale, then you're going to need 10 pounds to put the other side so that it will balance. If you put 10 and a half pounds on the other side, it'll be out of balance. You need 10 on one side and 10 on the other. The word worthy means to balance one side with the other. The, the Greek word for worthy is the word axios. Well, we get our word axis from it. it. It's that balancing point. But it also refers to something else in the Greek. It refers to the inherent value of something. And we've already talked about that that value is the privileges of our salvation. It is the benefits of being in the family of God. If we are talking about the inherent value of something, you need to ask yourself, what is your value on your salvation? You see, how you value your salvation is going to determine how you live. If it has not affected your lifestyle, if it has not affected the way you talk to people and about people, if it has not affected the way you treat others, then you've got a low appraisal of something that is inherently worth far beyond what you have even realized yet. Therefore, your life is not going to measure up to any standard that God requires. 
To walk in a manner worthy, chapters 1 through 3, gives you the inherent value of your salvation. Therefore, measure up by the way you allow your salvation to affect your life. So that there's that balance between your theology and your reality. Let me say that again. Walking in a manner worthy means that we live out our life, our thoughts and our our attitudes, our actions, sit on the axis of our reality and our theology. As we move into these next three chapters, it's going to be apparent to you and to me if our theology is being translated in our reality. Look at what it meant to Paul in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I, therefore the prisoner of the Lord. (laughs) Now we know what it meant to Paul, don't we? Paul said, I have completely submitted to his lordship, to the Lord's lordship, to God's lordship over me. Why? Here is a man who knew who he was and knew whose he was. He understood what happened to him at salvation, and it overwhelmed him and changed him for the rest of his life. The inherent value of our salvation is going to be seen as it it, it's worked out through our relationships in life with each other. If you want to know how you value your salvation, Paul's going to give us kind of a, a, a measuring stick, a way of seeing if the value I've placed on my salvation is actually being lived out. He's going to give us here in the next couple of chapters five ways that we are to walk in a manner worthy. Five ways to live out our calling, our, live out our salvation. Let me outline those for you real quickly. The first manner in which we are to walk includes an attitude of humility and gentleness, patience and tolerance. We will read through that in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And then the second one in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32 He's going to talk about a manner worthy of the calling that has to do with a renewed mind. The third manner worthy is to live out of sacrificial love. That's going to be found in Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. The fourth manner worthy is to live to be a light that exposes in Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. And then the fifth one is to live out of wisdom. Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. Each of these manners of walking worthy are going to help us understand what it looks like to live out our salvation, to live worthy of our calling. And the purpose, the purpose he gives right here in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, Paul tells us how to walk. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in a bond of peace. The whole purpose for this type of living is for that preservation of the unity of the faith. He doesn't say we're going to create a unity. He says to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on to say, there is only one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the unity that he wants us to preserve. And he's going to teach us how to do that by aligning our attitudes, the thoughts that will govern our responses to one another so that we might preserve the unity of the body. Paul addresses three attitudes that as a believer in Jesus Christ, who is living out our calling, humility, gentleness, and patience. Yeah, they don't come easily. I, I will be the first to admit that. We are going to have to walk in cooperation with the Holy Spirit if these God-like attitudes are going to be part of our lives. Let's look at this. Humility is an attitude toward myself. Gentleness is an attitude toward God. And patience that's an attitude toward others. I think it'll be helpful for us to kind of capture those three things in our mind. Humility is the attitude toward myself. Gentleness is going to be an attitude toward God. And patience is the attitude towards others. All right, let's break these down a little bit more. Let's look at humility. When the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this word humility, it has a very unique definition that I think might surprise you a little bit. This humility is a deep sense of one's moral littleness. For the unfallen creature, it's the acknowledgement, not of sinfulness, but of creatureliness, of absolute dependence, having nothing but receiving all things from God. Sometimes to understand a word, I think it's helpful to know what it is not. So let me tell you a little story about myself and humility. When I was little, probably 12 or 13 years old, a couple of us were asked to play a piano piece to accompany the congregation in singing during the Father's Day uh, Sunday service. Well, I was asked to play the, the song uh, Faith of Our Fathers. I practiced that thing for months and I had it down. But on the day that, the, that I was to play it in front of the church, I got so nervous that I couldn't even see the paper in front of me that had the music written on it. And it was as though my fingers got short and stubby and I couldn't play it. I sat there with the congregation trying to sing with me and unable to play. I'll tell you what, I was humiliated. I ran out of that, that church service and into the bathroom and I sat there and sobbed in total humiliation. My dear friend Jana Lee came running after me to try and console me and there was no consoling. I was humiliated. But when Paul's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this word, humility, it doesn't have to do with our sinfulness or our fallenness. Listen again to what it does mean. It is a deep sense of our littleness, of our creatureliness. And in that humility, we acknowledge that we are absolutely dependent, having nothing and receiving everything from God. Look, I'm a creature, not the creator. Birds will fly and fish will swim. Elephants will be elephants and lions will be lions. Trees will do what trees do and rivers will flow as rivers do. 
Oceans will rise and fall with the tide, and humans will do what humans do. But none of us are God. Only he knows all about everything because he created it. To understand my creatureliness is not about my shame. It's not even about my goodness. This humility is about being the creature and not the creator. It's a full dependency on God for all that is good. Why humility? (laughs) Because before we were made alive in Christ, pride defined our walk. Psalms 10.4 explains that the proud are so consumed with themselves that their thoughts are far from God. It says, in his pride, the wicked does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. This kind of haughty pride is the opposite of the spirit of humility that God seeks. The proud, on the other hand, are so blinded by their pride that they think they have no need for God, or worse, that God should accept them as they are because they deserve his acceptance. Throughout scripture, we're told about the consequences of pride. In Proverbs 16, 18 through 19, it tells us that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit, that lowly in spirits, this humility that Paul's talking about, and among the oppressed, than to share the plunder with the proud. You guys, Satan was cast out of heaven because of pride. We read about that in Isaiah 14. He had the selfish audacity to replace God himself as the rightful ruler of the universe. But Satan will be cast down to hell in the final judgment of God. For those who rise up in defiance against God, there is nothing but disaster ahead. Why is pride so sinful? Pride is giving ourselves the credit for something that God has accomplished. Pride is taking the glory that belongs to God alone and keeping it for ourselves. Pride is essentially self-worship. Anything we accomplish in this world would not have been possible were it not for God enabling us and sustaining us. I was thinking about my pride this week and, and how what's going on in my heart when I'm so prideful. I know this isn't all of it, but I can't help but wonder if pride isn't an outward expression of fear. Now, hold on, hang in here with me. The fear, the fear of letting go of the things that we believe we control. The things like uh, our reputation or our individuality or things that we claim to define us. I wonder if pride isn't the outward expression of a fear to let go of those things that scare us. Since God calls me to live in a manner worthy, to walk in a life that isn't afraid to love as we've been loved, humility then would be agreeing with God that only he has control. I then would be required to agree with him that I'm not in control. And and that releasing of that control could be frightening, is frightening. 
I'm convinced that that is why Paul says in chapter 3, being rooted and grounded in love, and love is that which cast out fear, that you may have the strength to comprehend how wide, how long, how high, how deep the love of Christ is. If, if we can't accept the depth of God's love for us, then how are we ever going to be able to release our control? Here's the shocking truth of it. We don't have control. We don't have control. That's what he's talking about here is this truth that we're the creatures. He's the creator. So humility is having that deep sense of one's littleness, our creatureliness. It's not about the sinfulness. It's not about the shame that comes in our sinfulness. It has to do with understanding everything is dependent on God, that only he can provide it. In 1 Peter 5, he says, Clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God opposes the pride. Why? Because our pride stands in opposition to receiving all that God has given us. Humility, then, would be agreeing with God that only he has control. Only he has the authority as the creator to allow or not allow things to happen. Maybe what Paul is trying to get us to understand is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to let go. Let go of the restraints we so value so we don't get hurt. Hmm, maybe that's what we're afraid of, getting hurt. So we stay ahead of anything that would plow us over. Maybe living in a manner worthy is loving as Jesus loves. Loving even when it will cost us. Even when it will scar us. Perhaps this lifestyle that God is calling us to is defined by the same kind of love that held our Jesus on the cross in humility. If humility is an attitude toward myself in my creatureliness, then the next attitude that Paul wants to address is gentleness, our attitude toward God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think of gentleness as being an attitude toward God. But listen to what he speaks through the Greek translation. The Greek word here in gentleness is priatos, P-R-A-O-T-E-S. You know, I don't know how to speak Greek, so I just try to phonetically sound it out. That's why I spell it for you. But this word in the Greek, gentleness, is an attitude of the spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and do not dispute or resist. Whew! Uh, do not dispute or resist God's dealings with us. So this gentleness has packed into it a submission to the sovereignty of God. What do I mean by that? If in humility I understand that I am the creature and he is the creator, then gentleness says I have an attitude that isn't going to argue with God when hard times come into my life. And I'm not going to resist when he wants to weed out sinfulness in my heart. 
ladies, this is some big girl stuff here. This is, this is Paul calling us to live in a manner that is submitted to the sovereignty of God. In the Old Testament, the word meek is used in place of gentleness often. And it says the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, that he is using them to purify his elect, and that he will deliver his chosen children in his time. We can read that in Isaiah 41, 17, and in Luke 18, 1 through 8. Gentleness or, or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from the trust in God's goodness and control over every situation. That's believing in the goodness of his sovereignty. A gentle person is not occupied with self at all. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. Guys, we're not going to be able to put this in us. But as we walk with the Holy Spirit, he's going to work it in and through our thinking. This gentleness is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit we read in Galatians 5.23. It is a balance born in the strength of character. Gentleness isn't for wimps. Gentleness is out of the strength of character. Let me illustrate it by the mighty stallion. You know the horses that run wild and strong and beautiful. The mighty stallion, while powerful, once tamed, has the power to do whatever he is called to do. But a tamed stallion has submitted to the reign over his life. He says that's what we're called to do. Gentleness is living in submission to the sovereignty of God his complete reign over your life and over those you love. We have one more attitude to look at before we move through the rest of this letter. So far, we've looked at the attitude of humility, which is toward ourself, and gentleness as being the attitude we have towards God. This last one is the attitude toward others, and it's patience. The Greek word for patience is makrothuma. It's a compound word. The first part, macro, means long, um, enduring. A lot of times patience is translated long-suffering. It comes from that macro part of this word. The second part of macrothuma is thuma, and we get our word thermostat. So if you put this together, macro meaning long, and thumo, it means it takes a long time to get hot. Let's look at it a different way. Self-restraint before proceeding to action. The quality of a person who is able to avenge himself, yet refrains from doing so. Paul says that we are to have patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. The word tolerance just means to bear with in regards to the errors or weaknesses of others. So you can see how patience and tolerance works together that we are to be people of quality that are able to avenge, but refrain from doing so. Peter describes this patient tolerance in the second chapter when he writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There's that patient tolerance. 
For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. All right, stop right there. When mindful of God is talking about our humility. It's our creatureliness. When all things come from God, in my creatureliness, I can endure sorrows while suffering unjustly because I know that God is sovereign. That's where that gentleness comes in. My attitude toward him. So in my humility, in my creatureliness, I surrender to this. And in my gentleness, my attitude toward God, I'm not going to dispute or resist what he brings into my life. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. Let me read that verse again for you. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus gives us such a beautiful example of how to live that out. But what I find interesting is his brother James writes in his letter in James chapter 1 on how that's going to be implemented into our lives. He says in James chapter 1 verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. See, those testings of your faith, those trials where it may seem unjust, in God's eyes, he permits it. He's sovereign. He's the creator. He says, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be made complete and perfect, lacking nothing. However, patient tolerance does not mean you turn a blind eye or ignore sinful behavior. Please, there's no love in watching someone self-destruct. But it does mean that we refrain from avenging wrongs done to us. We are to speak the truth in love, being patient with others and being tolerant of their errors and weaknesses. So the first manner worthy of our calling that Paul puts into place for us is to understand our attitude, our attitude of humility toward ourselves, of gentleness toward God, and of patience and tolerance toward others. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 7, Paul's going to show us how God is going to work that into the body. In verse 7, it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fulfill all things. 
Wow, ascending and descending. Even the commentators can't decide whether the descending was from heaven to earth or descending from earth to hell. But either way, what Jesus did was to fulfill all that was written for him so that he might fulfill all things. He did his part. And in doing that, he establishes a community of people to equip the saints. Look what he says in verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service or ministry to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Remember, we talked about that earlier. The, the whole purpose of this is to preserve the unity of the faith. And here he says it again, until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man and to a measure of the stature which brings to the fullness of Christ. Jesus establishes the equippers, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, so that the body in community can be built up in unity unto maturity. That's what he's looking for. These equippers, the apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, they feed the body in practical ways of unity. They teach us, you, you see there in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the ministry. So these people that God calls are the equippers. They are there. They're going to have this same attitude of humility and gentleness and patience with tolerance. But they, their job is to feed the body so that the rest of us will know how to live out of the goodness of our great God. And as a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men or by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. We're going to be established. We won't be tossed around, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects of Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together, by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The unity that God has called us to preserve is in love. Paul implored us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling May you find the fullness of God in wisdom and understanding of your calling. Back Porch Bible Studies is the ministry of women in Christian leadership. You can find this podcast on your favorite forum or go to womeninchristianleadership.com to find the many ways women in Christian leadership can help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Back Porch Bible Studies would like to thank their sponsor, the faith-based business of Millennium Metals, in business to serve Christ.